All right, so there's probably an elders meeting after this service to figure out how to get rid of me because I'm preaching on the resurrection in Christmas time. And I was like, what's the matter with this guy? <laughs> Jan asked me this morning, what are you preaching on? And I said, oh, Easter. And she said, what? So anyway, no, what I want to do is it's the last week in November. I want to conclude the book of Matthew. And then we're going to spend December looking at Jesus, the great mediator, and what it means that he became a child and, and man, uh, and focus on, on that. And then, Lord willing, starting in January, um, we'll be in the book of Ephesians. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask and pray that you would please be with us and you would help us. We pray, Father, that you would come in the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would work in our midst in a way that you will help us to know what it means to have a living Savior, to have one that we can speak with and trust and talk to, and we can know the one who is sitting upon the throne of all of the universe. Give us grace now. Help us to capture some of the power of this resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually, the truth of the matter is this is Resurrection Day. A lot of times people ask, why did Christians worship on Sunday uh, when the Jews worshiped on Saturday on the seventh day of the week? And the interesting thing is, is that all of the Jews who were totally committed to Saturday worship, once the resurrection came, began to worship on the first day of the week. Because the first day of the week, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the first day of the week, the first day of the week becomes the very first resurrection day becomes the first day of the new heavens and the new earth. The first day of the redemption of the world. The first day of the age to come. The first day of the power of the resurrection and the power of new life. And that's why Christians then began to meet and worship and celebrate the first day of the week. And that's what, uh, and so every Sunday for them was Resurrection Day, and that's what they studied. And so today, I want to look at the glorious conclusion of the book of Matthew. So let's put everything aside here and focus on this, because I think this is extremely important for us to do, is to look at uh, how this story of Jesus, I, the, re, the only reason I didn't want to delay this is because we have just been studying about the cross. We have just been uh, watching, get, we went through Gethsemane together recently. We went through the cross together. We went through the sufferings. We went through all that they went through. And I didn't want to delay us to understand the joy and to get a sense of the joy of what they experienced today. But I'd like to begin, before we, we, t we look at this, I'd like to begin somewhere. I was talking to James this morning and I was saying I was listening to Handel's Messiah and I was rejoicing in that and I, I absolutely love Handel's Messiah I listen to it year-round usually but I was listening to it this morning and just rejoicing in it and uh, and I I felt I, I said you know I said to Jan you know Jan it's interesting um, we live in a secular culture now and and yet we can't give up Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter we can't give them up. We, we, we love them. And so, so for Christmas, what we've done is we've gotten Jesus out of the way. We've gotten all out. We've got our Hallmark channel now. We've got the, but we, we, we gather as family. We give gifts. Thanksgiving, we get together. We don't know who to thank, so we thank each other. We, we got God out of it, but we can't get rid of these, these, these celebrations. And I thought, the problem is, is that secular cultures have nothing to celebrate. Like, secular culture has nothing to celebrate. What secularism is going to celebrate? 
evolution? Are we going to celebrate? We came from we came from apes. We 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 came from slime. Uh, what do you? How do you have a celebration from that? What are they going to say? Eternal life? You don't have eternal life. You die. You go in the grave. Secularism has absolutely nothing to celebrate, so they keep these holidays uh, as as such. And then when you start talking about them, but I said to Jim, but you know what's wild? The holidays that they've kept, Christmas and Easter, say for instance, Jesus comes from heaven and is incarnated, and there's a virgin birth. There's all this miraculous stuff. And then the resurrection, there's a dead man who stands up, and he's walking around, and he's alive. And he ascends to heaven, and he rules. I said, and so those two, those two celebrations, it's like God has the last laugh. Those two celebrations are really about God. Well, a lot of times secular people will use this phrase, and I just, one of our members here asked me to, listen to a podcast with him and, and, and help him with some of the questions that were involved. And one of the things that was mentioned in the podcast is this. This was done by secular people who are trying to figure out what the world's all about, and they're moving toward Christianity, we're hoping. But one of them kept saying, I just can't take this leap of faith. I just can't take this leap of faith. Everybody tells me, just believe, just believe. I can't take this leap of faith. And the impression out there was, that he had was, that Christianity is a blind leap of faith. That, that you just, okay, I'm going to put my mind aside and I'm just going to take this blind leap of faith into Christianity. And you will hear this a lot today. People say, Christianity is just a leap of faith. You took the leap. I can't, leap, I can't take the leap. It's a blind leap of faith. And that's a huge misunderstanding. Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. Christianity is trusting or embracing something that is factually, evidentially based on historical realities. That's what it is. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine, I'll use me as an example. Imagine that I went to the doctor and the doctor says, Todd, you have a brain tumor. It's, it's benign. It's not, it's not cancerous, but we need to get it out of there. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen these surgeries. They do these surgeries now where you're awake during the brain surgery because as they're probing down there in your brain trying to get that little tumor out of there, they don't want to touch anything that's going to stop you from... And so I've seen people playing violin while they're having the brain surgery because they don't want to lose that ability. Or I just saw one of the ladies playing the saxophone. Sometimes people read. I told Jan I'll be reading my Greek New Testament because I don't know, whatever you do, touch my brain. Don't take this away from me. So, so imagine you had to have a brain surgery like that. Now, imagine then, uh, so Pastor Todd needs a brain surgery, okay? And so imagine I come here one Sunday, and two guys come up to me, a second grader and a third grader, okay? We'll put a name to them, Isaac and Connor, okay? So Isaac and Connor come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Todd, we've been looking at YouTube videos, and uh, we got grossed out at first, but, but now we're pretty cool with it. We've been looking at a lot of YouTube videos on this brain surgery, and we think we can do this. We would like to do brain surgery on you, okay? Now, that would be a leap of faith, okay? That would be a leap of faith, all right? Now, compare that to Jeff Knopf here is a surgical nurse, and Jeff told me once, he said, listen, Todd, some doctors are much better than others, so if you need a doctor, you come to me, and I'll tell you which one you should go to. And I said, okay, Jeff, that's really helpful. So I have a brain, I go to Jeff, Jeff, who should I get? Jeff says, get this, this guy or this guy. Get this person. I said, okay. So then I said, well, what's their, so I go on, I check out, what's their training? Oh, they're highly trained. Do they have experience? Yes, they have a proven record. They've done this, they, they've done this often. So then I meet with the person, because I like to look people in the eye. I like to size them up. I like to see if I feel confident in general. I meet this person. I said, this person is really a capable person, really intelligent, really got this going and everything. And then I know that, and I said, can I speak to some people that you have, yeah, yeah, here, here's some names, here's some names. So after all of that, 
After all of that, this very highly trained brain surgeon, if anybody can do it, this guy can do it. He's going to make this happen. After all of that, guess what? I would be crazy not to trust him because I have a tumor. I would be crazy not to go to him. And to, dear friends, that's what Christianity, I embraced it. I said, listen, put me under, cut into my brain, probe around in there, get this out. I'm going to trust myself to you. That would be a wise, intelligent, in, uh, intellectually solvent decision that I made on his behalf. And I'm, what I'm recommending to you is that's what Christianity is. Christianity is that. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at this, this passage, not, a, not, not sort of like a Hallmark car, Kardish, you know, resurrection thing. We're going to look at this as an, what's called an unbroken line, chain of evidence. When there's, a, when there's a crime, for instance, done, or when there, there's something done, they, it is very important that you have an unbroken chain of evidence. The evidence has to be unbroken chain where there, there's one event after another event, another event, and that evidence was not tampered with at all. And I want you to look at this in one sense in that way, because you and I are going to trust, entrust ourselves to the resurrected Jesus. And so there needs to be a sense that we're not entrusting ourselves to doctors Connor and, and Isaac. There needs to be a sense that we're trusting ourselves to the true have historical evidential thing. And I think that it's being presented by that, like that, here in Matthew. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at, beyond the historical evidence, beyond the facts, we're going to look at what this means for us. And we're going to look at that under two headings. One is power and one is hope. Power and hope. So let's begin with the facts, the unbroken chain of evidence, and then we'll go from power to hope. So we're going to go relatively quickly over this long passage of Scripture. I want you to notice something, though. Right before the verse that Jonathan read, which is chapter 26, verse 57, notice right before that verse, at the, resur at the crucifixion itself, it says this, And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. The disciples are not there. They've left. We do know that John was there at one point. But the disciples, are, they've left. They, they, have, they have high visibility. If, the guys are, if they, they're going to come after Jesus' enemies next, they're going to come after the disciples. And we know for a fact that they wanted to kill Lazarus because he was a real problem for them because he was dead. Now he's walking around alive. They wanted to kill Lazarus. They want these disciples. So these disciples are locked in a room, and they're hiding, okay? But these women who are a little bit under the radar, are here. These women are there the whole time, and they have a very key role here, these women. Now, notice that, and it says, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were, and they actually named them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. That's James and John. So these women see they are the actual eyewitnesses of the crucifixion. They see Jesus there. They listen to him. They hear him cry out. They hear him say then, uh, it is finished. They see the spear going into his side, and they watch him flop over as dead. They see him dead. Now notice what happens next. Verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, is there. Now the big problem that they have is Jesus was so quickly arrested and so quickly executed that his body is hanging there right before the Sabbath day, and a special Sabbath day because it's Passover, and it was very wrong, the Jews felt it was very wrong for any body to be hanging there. But who's going to bury Jesus? 
Who's going to bury Jesus? Well, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, comes forth, and he's a really interesting character. Number one, he's rich. Number two, he's actually a member of the Sanhedrin. Number three, he was a secret disciple of Jesus, John said, uh, because of the fear of the Jews. Number two, he had another secret disciple of Jesus who was a friend of his, and that was Nicodemus. And John tells us that both Joseph and Nicodemus come forward, and they want the body of Jesus, and they want to bury it. Which is interesting because here Joseph of Arimathea is here, he, and he finally comes out publicly. And he says, listen, Pilate, I would like to have the body of Jesus. I would like to bury it. He identifies himself with Jesus, even though this is actually before the resurrection. Joseph of Arimathea watching Jesus, listening to him, believing him, watching the trial, even watching him die. He's convinced that this was somebody special. He was a believer and a disciple, and he wants him. And so he puts Jesus in a tomb that was, that was dug out of uh, rock for him, and this massive stone is rolled over front of the tomb. And that's, that's what we have. That's what we have. So And here, but notice this. What I want you to notice is this. Notice at the verse 61, it says, And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And so the, the two Marys now, they watched, they saw him die. They watched the body being taken off. They watched the body being taken away. They follow along and they see the tomb and they see the stone rolled across the tomb where Jesus laid. This is an unbroken chain of evidence. These women are eyewitnesses every step of the way. See, somebody could have said when these women went to the tomb uh, uh, after the Sabbath on Sunday morning, they go to the tomb in the dark. They could have gone to the wrong tomb. They could have gone to a tomb that was half done and, and there the, the stone is rolled to the side and everything. They could have gone, no, because they didn't know where the tomb was. No, no, these women, they were, they, there was an unbroken chain of evidence. They watched all the way across. They knew exactly where the tomb was. They knew exactly where it was. And so they're eyewitnesses to this whole thing. Then the next thing that you have in this passage is the Jewish leaders make a huge blunder. They make a huge blunder. They think they're doing the right thing. They make an absolutely huge blunder. And here's the blunder. Verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command, now check this out, command that the tomb be made, look at the word there, secure, secure. Until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, secure, a guard, and go your way and make it as secure as you know how. Secure the crime scene. That's what they're saying here. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This was a huge blunder in their behalf. They thought that they were doing something. We don't want them to steal the body and say that there's a resurrection. And what did they do? They assured, they assured that that body couldn't be tampered with. They assured that nobody could steal that body. They assured that no wild animal could get in. They did everything possible to make sure that this untampered chain of evidence uh, stayed safe. This is exactly what we do in crime scenes. We put, we, put, we put tape around the place. It's a crime scene. It's illegal to walk in there. We make sure that, that not, nothing is tampered, that everything is kept the way it is. We want the evidence there to be there. And they're actually doing all of us a favor. 
because historically that body could not possibly have been stolen. That body had to have been, had to have been raised from the dead. And so it's a huge blunder for them because they think they're doing something right. Well, the days, the days go by and then the early morning on the first day of the week, look at verse 28, chapter 28, I'm sorry. Now, after the Sabbath, it was the first day of the week. Extremely important, first day of the week, it becomes, it becomes their, their day of worship. He began to dawn, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary come to, came to see the tomb. They knew exactly which tomb it was. They knew to be there. Here you go. Your eyewitnesses are there. They've eyewitnessed the, the crucifixion, and they've eyewitnessed the burial, and now they're going to eyewitness the resurrection. And there, behold, I love that word, by the way, behold, behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, just think about this. The, or there's a, literally an earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. A, I could put it this way. A fresh angel right out of heaven. That's what you have. A fresh angel right out of heaven. This angel of the Lord descends from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. I love him sitting on it, by the way. I think that's just great. He rolls it away and he sits on it. It was nothing to him. He probably went like this. Waiting for the women to come. Sat on it. Earth. Now think about this. This all happens once. Earthquake. Angel. Rolled away stone. He's sitting on it. This is all happening just in a moment, okay? Now notice verse 3. This is why I say fresh from heaven. His countenance was like lightning. What in the world is that like? Sometimes the Bible says his countenance was like the sunshine. This is countenance like lightning. It's so bright. It's so glaring. It's so amazing. It's so, it's so heaven-like. His, his countenance like lightning. His clothes is white as snow. Now, verse 4. And the, angel, and the guards shook for fear of him. It's really interesting because the word earthquake in verse 2, it comes, we get our word seismograph from it. We get it. It's seismic. It, the word, that's the Greek word. And, and it's the exact same word, as it were, that's used in verse 4 for, the, for the, uh, the guards. And so the earth shakes and trembles. And now these guards shake and tremble. And they're just, they're, they're, on, they're on total emotional uh, overload. Total emotional overload. They shook for fear of him. And then, boom, they all hit the ground. They, they just pass out. These big, brave soldiers, they just pass out. Which, by the way, the two women don't. But the angel talks to them specifically. Because notice what happens. They see the same thing, but the two women are still standing. All the big, tough guys are, are passed out. Verse 5. But the angel answered and said to the women, and the New King James didn't quite catch this here. It really is this. Don't you be afraid. It's okay if they pass out. Don't you be afraid. You have nothing to fear, you two. They got a lot to fear. They, 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 I would have passed out if I was them. The someone's saying, but don't you two fear because you're special. You're, you're beloved. Don't you two fear. And that's, that's actually the emphasis of, of the original language. He says, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's not here. For he's risen. He's risen, as they say, as he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. He is risen like he promised he would be risen. Now, look, I rolled the stone aside. See, they didn't need to roll the stone aside so Jesus could get out. Jesus is going to enter into a locked room in a couple hours in Jerusalem. 
They rolled the stone aside so that they could look in and they could see that it was empty. They could see that he was gone. They could see that he wasn't there and that he had risen. And so they look inside and then he says, and then it says this. He's not risen. He's here. Come and see the place. And then verse 7, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. You guys go and tell him what he told you to do. What he t- and what he told them to do was meet him in Galilee. In fact, look at chapter 26, verse 32. Look at chapter 26, verse 32, when Jesus said, he says, um, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. He wants them to get out of Jerusalem. He wants them to get out of town. And eventually, the, the, the post-resurrection appearances are primarily in Galilee. He wants them to get where they're safe, get to their hometown. He says, so he says, I'm going to, that's what he's going to do. And so they start running, verse 8. So they went out quickly to, from the tomb and with great fear and with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. They just had such this complex emotion at this point. They're like, what? We just saw an angel. This is, we saw the tomb roll by. He's risen. And they're all excited. He's risen. He's risen. He said he's risen. He said he's risen. And then, boom, they, jump, they bump into Jesus, verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, look, wow, check it out. Jesus met them saying, rejoice, rejoice. Now, I love this next line. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Isn't that something? I think that is a very special moment right there. I think there's something so special. Well, first of all, remember our chain of evidence? These ladies are holding real human feet. The feet are wounded. We know because he's going to show his hands and his side and his feet to his disciples in about in a couple hours. Those feet are wounded. They're obviously his feet. This is obviously Jesus. This is a physical resurrection from the dead, miraculous. But it's Jesus, too. It's all true. He's back. He's here. 36 hours ago, 48 hours ago, three days ago, they saw him hanging on the cross. They heard when the nails were being nailed through those feet. They saw the agony. They saw it. Their hearts were broken. They saw the dead, limpless body taken down. They saw it placed in that tomb. And now they see him there, and he's standing there, and he's telling them to rejoice, and they fall at his feet, and they worship him, and they hold those feet. They hold those feet. He's alive. He's alive. It all falls into place. Just as he said, he would be alive again. He's Lord. He's Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's risen. What a beautiful scene. And then he said to them, do not be afraid. Go, go tell my brethren go to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then we have this absolutely pathetic response, unbelievably pathetic response. The guards come back, and they tell these men what they saw. They tell these men what they saw. And you know what they saw? What they saw was the power of the kingdom of God. What they saw was something that they belittled and made fun of on Friday. 
Remember they made fun of him as a king? They joked about him being a king. They strutted around like Romans and this Jewish king. They beat him. They laughed at him. They made fun of him. Why? Because of the power of Rome. Because of the power. They had all power over him. And now they've fallen to the ground from just one of his servants. They haven't even seen him. Just one of his servants, the angel. They fall upon the ground. They pass out. An earthquake comes. It's all, it's all, the, the stone is moved. And so the stone that guards the seal is absolutely laughably nothing to the power of Jesus' kingdom. The power of the kingdom has come. The power of the king has come. A power greater than Rome, greater than the Jewish leaders, a power greater from the king of all kings. And what do these guys do? What do these guys do? They reach for their silver bag again. Just like they did with Judas, giving him silver. They reach for their silver bag again. And they say, here, we'll pay you. We'll pay you. Pass out, a Pass out this lie that this was all a lie and that they came and they took the body. And somehow or another, these fright, frightened little fishermen and tax collectors overpowered an entire Roman force and stole the body uh, and moved that big stone. You go, you go tell them that. What, what a terrible thing this is. What envy. What lies. Their enmity is so bad that they will do anything instead of bowing down and recognizing the truth. And then finally, this passage ends with the amazing passage of Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's authority. There's the one who was beaten and whipped. There's the one who had the crown of thorns upon his head. In verse 18, saying, I have been risen now and I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he tells them to go and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize those disciples and teach those disciples. And then he says this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The eternal, everlasting, forever one is now going to be with them forever. What a wonderful story, isn't it? What wonderful story. But it's way more than a story. You see, dear friends, it is not a leap of faith to believe this. It is not a leap of faith. These are not mere religious stories. These aren't myths all tied together. This isn't a feel-good Hallmark movie channel movie. These are historical realities and historical facts. These are real people who experienced something very real and alive. These are people who, these are eyewitnesses. This is an unbroken chain of evidence. This is tamper-proof evidence. This is what this is. And dear friends, that is what the entire Bible is. Abraham was a real person. David, King David, was a real person. Daniel, Isaiah, real people. There was a real temple. There was a real priesthood. There were real sacrifices. There were real prophecies. And those prophecies were actually fulfilled. All of this pointing to Jesus. Even Israel. Even the nation of Israel. Even the fact that there's a nation of Israel today must tell you something. Where are the Amalekites? Where are the Hittites? Where are the Perizzites? Where are the Hivites? Where's Goliath and the Philistines? Where are those nations? Even the Assyrian nation, where is it? Where are those people? They're gone, but there's little Israel. There's little Israel still around. That alone is evidence. But then there's Jesus, and there's these apostles, and there's this resurrection. 
and these men's lives was transformed. They're hovering right now in the story. They're in a room just shaking like crazy until Jesus comes and talks to them. And all of a sudden, they become powerful. They become, they become alive. And, and by the time of Acts chapter 2, Jesus, Acts chapter 1, Jesus appears to them. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter's standing in the middle of Jerusalem, and he's preaching the resurrected Christ. Acts chapter 3, they're being persecuted. Acts chapter 5, they're being whipped because of the saying Jesus they won't shut up, saying Jesus is alive. And they walk out of there thankful that they could suffer. Acts, early in the, later on in the book of Acts, James is executed. And they just keep saying, we saw him, we saw him, he's alive. We saw him, we saw him. These are credible witnesses. Witnesses willing to go to death, and they did go to death. And Paul said that there over one point, over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. And then Paul said he, as one born out of, out of, out of proper time, he saw the resurrected Christ. And these, this, this absolutely Christ-hating, pharisaical Jewish man, leader, who is heading to go persecute Christians, his life is completely turned around. He writes most of our New Testament. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. This isn't a leap of faith. This is eyewitness accounts full of evidence. It's historical evidence. And it's embracing something. And just like I used the illustration of the brain surgeon, yes, I'm not going to go with Drs. Connor and Isaac. I am going to go with this guy. And I have really a lot of reasons and confidence to go with this guy. And I would be crazy not to go with this guy because this tumor would kill me instead. See, dear friends, this isn't a leap of faith. In fact, there is such a preponderance of evidence that Christianity is true that if you don't go with Christianity, you'll perish. You'll perish. But I'd like to give you, in closing, another line of evidence. Under the heading of power, what do we do when somebody dies? Well, it's over. We, we might get their best suit or dress. We might lay them out in a coffin. We'll say good things about them. We'll bury them. And we'll walk away. What do you mean? What do we do? There's nothing else to do. Maybe have a dinner. There's nothing else. That, we're powerless. There's nothing else that we can do. But with Jesus, the power to overcome. What happens after Jesus dies? Well, he's laid in a tomb, big rock world over He's laying there, and then his eyes open. They blink. His brain starts functioning. His diaphragm starts moving. He starts breathing. His heart jumps into... He sits up. He stands up. He's resurrected from the dead. He's resurrected, and he's glorious. He can actually walk through a wall, which he's going to do that evening. He actually appears on the road of Emmaus. He appears and, 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 and he said, death is powerless. Death is powerless. He dies and he gets back up again. They crucify him. They bury him. They're happy he's done. And he just sits back up and he walks out, the, he walks out of the tomb. Death is powerless over him. Death is powerless over him. And guess what, dear friends? That same power that can make death powerless that can neutralize death, that can make death irrelevant so that death in the new heavens and new earth will eventually just disappear because there's no bodies that it can even infest. That same power, listen, 
that same power brought you here to church today. It did. It did. What are you, what are you talking about, Toby? How, how are you saying that? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, listen to what I'm saying. If you are a Christian, if you are a real inside and outside Christian, okay, you're the real deal, okay? You can be a pretend Christian. You're not one of them. If you are a real Christian, a real inside and outside Christian, something dramatic has happened to you. And that dramatic thing that has happened to you is resurrection power, okay? The same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. Let me show you this in the book of Ephesians. We're going to go into great detail on this stuff, glorious detail over the next year when we study the book of Ephesians. But Paul is praying in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, and he says this, that the eyes, he prays, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Those are two glorious things. Can't go into that. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, this resurrection power, is at work in you, Paul says. And I want your eyes of your heart to be open, the eyes of your understanding to be open, to understand that resurrection power is at work in you. Look at chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul convinces all of us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But then look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to stop there. We're going to go into greater detail because that's saying a whole lot more than what I'm about to say here. But one of the things that it does say is this. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work within us. In fact, we were buried with Jesus. We were raised with Jesus. And that same power is at work with us. We were dead in trespasses and sins, and we have been made alive by that same power. Imagine a city like New York City or L.A. or Chicago. Imagine a city like that, and they have a power outage. All the lights go off. Boom. All the fans stop. All the all the all the, uh, the the electric ovens doom dead. All the TVs dead. Power outage. Everything goes boom. At the power station, guys are working frantically. Get this going. Get this going. Get this going. And all of a sudden, okay, okay, I think we're I think we're ready. I think. And they probably they probably do it like this now, but it's more dramatic. I guess pull the switch. Okay. As soon as that switch is pulled from that power station. All of New York City lights up again. All of the fans start running. All of the coffee starts boiling again. All of the TVs come on. All of them from that one power switch. And dear friends, that's what this is saying. The resurrection power of Christ, the resurrection power of Christ is operative and work in each one of us as well. How did that work in your life? How did that work in your life to make you a Christian? Well, think about it, dear friends. You were just going along, just going along, do, 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 do. and all of a sudden, strangely, you start having concern for your own soul. Hmm. Wow, do you, think, do you think there is an eternity? 
What is there a heaven and hell? And then somewhere along the line, you started thinking big thoughts. You see, up to that point, you and I, we dwelt like all of our friends did on little thoughts all the time. What am I going to eat? Who am I going to date? What am I, who am I going to party with this Friday night? Those, those were little thoughts. We always just thought little thoughts all the time. Little, little thoughts. All of a sudden, you started thinking big thoughts. Like, what's this all about? Why are we here? Is there any meaning to this? Is there a God? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? How did that happen? You started to look with concern for your sin, at your sins. Man, I, I'm kind of messed up. I kind of do bad stuff. Now, before this power came upon you, before this power came upon you, you would say, ah, I ain't that bad. Hey, everybody does this stuff. No one's perfect. But none of that fits anymore for you. You were like, no, this stuff is bad. No, something's... And you started looking at your sin differently. Then you started thinking about God. You started thinking about death. You started thinking about eternity. And eventually you saw your need for a savior. You saw that Christ had all that you need. Forgiveness and love and acceptance and eternal life and everlasting life was found in him. It wasn't found in you. And that became really important to you. And then something amazing happened. Something turned your heart. Turned your heart. From this world, what am I going to eat? Who am I going to sleep with? What am I going to, what are we going to party Friday night? Who got the beer? What the, somebody turned your heart from that. Something turned your heart from all of your friends and from being accepted and from craving their acceptance. Even turned your heart from your family. Something turned your heart away from all of that and turned your heart from those things you loved to somebody, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you absolutely loved more than them. And you were willing to forsake them. You were willing to leave them. You didn't even care. You didn't care if they didn't invite you out on Friday night anymore because you wanted him. You wanted salvation. You saw in him all beauty. You saw in him salvation. You saw in him hope. You saw in him eternal life. You saw in him one who died for your sins. You saw in him the great king and God. Something and your heart, your heart was turning. What power? took your heart from this to him. And the answer is the same resurrection power that raised him from the dead. You've experienced this power. You were made anew. You were made alive. You were, made, you were taken from the spiritual death that you were in. The lordship of sin was broken. The power of sin was broken. Spiritual life flowed into you, and you chose Christ. You came to Christ. You trusted Christ. You loved Christ. And you were ready to forsake all that other stuff. That's power, real power, true power, the power of God, resurrection power, power that gives life to the dead. And that's why I say you're here in church today because you have experienced the power of God. When that switch was turned and all of that electricity flew from Jesus, all of the resurrection power flew from Jesus into all of his followers for all of time, that power flowed into you. And that power is still working in you. Power to change. Power to transform us from sins. Power to deliver us from sins. Power to overcome temptation. Power to bear fruit in our lives. Power to change my life and make me different. So that people might be even saying this about you. Man, you're a different person. Your friends might be saying about you. Man, I don't even like hanging around with you anymore. You're different, man. You're not fun anymore. 
Christians may be saying to you, I really, man, you're, it's, it's, wow, I can't believe how far you came. I can't believe what you are. I can't believe. That's the power of the resurrection at work in the life of Christ's people. And Christ came and suffered and died and rose again to unleash this power into all of our lives. And that's what the power of the resurrection is. So it's power. And finally, it's hope. And here it was very hard to limit this. Hope slash joy slash triumphant outlook slash bravery slash peace. It's all of that. It's all of that. Jesus is alive right now. Jesus is alive right now. Jesus is alive forever. You can talk to the living Jesus. You can pray to him. You can talk to him. You can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ right now. He's alive. He's our righteousness. When you sin and you feel like you're a failure and you feel like you're, you're not adequate and, and you're, you're, you're just not worthy and, and you've fallen down, you can just look to him. He's alive. He's resurrected. He's at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And there he is. We sing to him. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The living Savior is there. I sin, you sin. We get down, we feel down. The devil starts jumping all over us. What are we supposed to do? Look up to see him. And what does he do? He just turns to his father like this, scars in his hand. And the father says, forgiven, cleansed, justified. He's our high priest. He's alive. He's a real living, live high priest. He prays for us every day. He prays for us all the time. He's constantly interceding for us. He's our high priest. He represents us there. He's our high priest. He gives us grace. Jesus is also the ruler of all things. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He rules everything. He reigns. And let me ask you this. Who would you ever want to be in that place but him? I want Jesus in that place. The glorious and great Jesus. But then we have hope. More hope. He's coming back. He's coming back to clean up this mess. There will be no more sin when he comes back. No more lies, no more hurt, no more bitterness, no more broken relationships, no more hatred, no more injustice, no more addictions, and no more death, no more sickness, no more disease, no more suffering. He's coming back. He's going to clean all that mess up. He's going to bring perfect righteousness, perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfect brotherhood. One beautiful, holy, happy family of close brothers and sisters in Christ, the children of God. He's coming back to make us all that. That's why the Bible talks about, it, it, how could it describe this? White robes, crowns, streets of gold, palm branches, harps, God in their midst. And because he rose again from the dead, that will be forever. Forever. No more goodbyes. No more, no more checking your watch. When do you have to leave? No more pang of fear. 
This is all going to end someday. Our all of our relationships with our loved ones and our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ and the new people that we meet in heaven. In our relationship with God and our relationship with Christ, there he is, we can see him, we're there. All that will do is just grow and deepen and be enriched and deepen and grow and grow and grow forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Those women probably didn't make all those connections when they were holding those feet and they were just worshiping and they couldn't believe that he was alive, but they had to believe he was alive because they were holding real warm feet and they knew it was him because they were wounded feet and they were worshiping and so happy and their whole life just changed in that one second. But dear friends, that's the joy that we should have. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's the joy that we should have. Finally, let me just say to the unbeliever, none of this is yours. None of it is yours. If you are sitting here today and you're, you refuse to, to trust in Jesus, you, you don't want to be a Christian. There's too many cool things out there. You are concerned about your friends. You are concerned about what's going on on Friday night. None of this is yours. None of this is yours. And it's not yours because Jesus is not yours. And because Jesus is not yours, you have no power. You have no hope. You're lost. You're powerless. Your sin has power over you. Your unbelief has power over you. You would have been one of these Pharisees reaching in your pocket to try to get some silver to just say, say it was a lie, say it was a lie. These guys are sitting here saying, we trembled, there was an earthquake, we passed out, and we just, the tomb was empty, we saw an angel. Tell them it's a lie, tell them it's a lie, tell them it's a lie. What kind of perverted, twisted unbelief is that that they didn't say, seriously? Wow, maybe I need to check this out. No, you're the same way. You don't want to hear about Jesus. You don't care about Jesus. You don't want to hear about this. You don't want Christianity to be true. Why? Because you're under the power of unbelief. You're under the power of sin. You're under the power of Satan. And all of these evidences are meaningless to you. Meaningless to you. And if you stay under that power, if you stay under that force, if you stay under that unbelief, you will perish. You will die and go to hell. And there you will stay forever. Forever. But in the midst of that sobering reality, there is some really good news. The resurrected Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. And he is saying to you, come to me. I'll give you the power. I'll open the tap switch of resurrection power. I'll give you the power. Hope in me. Trust in me. And you know what he's offering you? He's offering you himself. In all of his glory, in all of his majesty, I offer myself to you. Oh, dear unbeliever, that you would hear his voice this morning. That Satan would not snatch it from your heart. That you would hear his voice. And that you would flee to him. And in him you would find power and hope, and joy, and salvation. Let's pray together. We praise you and we thank you, living Lord Jesus. They beat you. They crucified you. They nailed you up. They laughed at you. They spit upon you and they made fun of you. You allowed them. They took you down and they shoved you in a tomb and they shut the door and they left you.
And now you are raised, you are resurrected, you are glorious, and we can talk to you. You are our hope. Tomorrow we can talk to you. The next day we can talk to you. If we go through trials, you will be with us. If we go through death, we will fall asleep in your arms. We will go immediately to be with you. We will live with you forever. You're preparing a place because you're alive. You're alive. And this isn't a leap of faith. There's a ton of historical evidence. You're alive. Thank you. And thank you that we can come to know you. And as we focus in the month ahead of the fact that you left heaven to come to save us, we thank you that you are now alive in heaven, head and ruler of all things, and we can trust you. Oh, please, dear Lord, if there's any here today, no matter how young, who don't believe in you, save them, we pray. Save them. Come with your great power. Grant them eternal life. We pray this all in your precious name.